I don't know what word was going through your guys' mind while reading this, but the main word I could find to describe it, because the writing style is a little bit different, was it was probably the most charismatic book that I've read. Like it felt like I was being wailed stories like over a beer in a bar and that the storyteller was actually definitely a little drunk (laughs) and kind of going on and being redundant, but it was fun anyway, especially the first four chapters. That was like the word that kept coming to mind. I was like, this is such a charismatic opening. Did you guys get this paperback version? I had a paperback. I had that same cover. Yeah. If anybody buys the paperback, and the book is the right stuff, which I guess we haven't said yet. But if anybody buys the paperback, there's this incredible picture of Tom Wolfe, the author, in the intro. It's, it's scribbled over because Sutton was playing with the pen. <laughs> <laughs> but it's like that. that is exactly the vibe that you imagine when you read the writing, right? Like that, that charismatic writing. He completely looks the part. It's so perfect. Uh, I'm looking him up right now. He does look the part. Right? Wow. <laughs> Have either of you read anything by him before? No, but I've heard of a lot of them. Same. And I had never read anything either. And I actually, deal. when you suggested the book, I was like, oh, this is going to be one of those like mainstream like history books that just is kind of like not super interesting. And I was completely wrong. And and also the style was very <laughs> different than what I was expecting. Like I thought it yeah. would be, yeah, I thought it'd be very like safe and just not, you know, intri- written in an intriguing way. And like, it's not that he threw a lot of his opinions in there, but it was, it was just done in char- Yeah. Charismatic is like the right word. Yeah. The, the other book of his that I've heard a lot about is Bonfire at the Vanities. Yeah. And everyone that I've mentioned this book to, uh, if they're not interested in like airplane stuff, they're like, yeah, whatever, but read Bonfire at the Vanities. They immediately jump to that. So I think that has to get somewhere onto our list. Have, neither of you have read his other work. No. No, that that was the other one that I heard recommended a few times. And then the other one everyone knows is <clears throat> Electric Kool-Aid Acid Test. Oh, hadn't heard of oh, that. Oh, was, that was by him too? Yeah. Oh, wow. Okay, cool. I've heard of that one. Yeah. Actually, this book also had some interesting connection to Where's My Flying Car. There was so much in this book talking about like the rapid advancement of like, call it like the aerospace industry. Yeah. Where they were like, oh, we can't go the speed of sound. It might be impossible to like them like consistently like going Mach 2, Mach 3, then like into space in like such a short period of time. When you were looking at the years, you were like, wait, this is all in the same like decade. Yeah. They've gone yeah. from like not thinking they can break the sound barrier to being like, oh yeah, that's no problem. <laughs> like we can I mean, we go into space now. The book is long and it feels long. Like it's 350 pages, but it feels like it's 500 or so pages because yeah. there's something about it that makes it a little bit slower to read. Even though it's like very exciting and well written, it just feels slower. And then I think my guess is it's done deliberately, but at the end when they're reflecting on the end of Project Mercury, and they keep saying, you know, the good old days of three years ago. I was like, wow, like it was only three years. <laughs> it was a short time. Whole period, book yeah. is across three years. <laughs> yeah. Pretty amazing. It's also, I mean, it shouldn't be that surprising, but it's like, so I guess maybe before I say that, like the, the, the general flow of the yeah. book is they're talking about fighter pilots, basically, like at the beginning of the book and kind of what that training like i think like top gun right is like kind of a good way to, like a good reference point if you don't know much about this which i didn't 
I kept thinking about Top Gun, right? It's like the training, the like what they're expected to do, their lifestyle. And then it, the book kind of takes a transition from that into the space program, the US space program, and kind of obviously the like political ramifications of that. So like the Soviet and American like space race, but then also the technological advancements that were involved along the way, and then the people that were involved along the way. They don't go all the way through the moon part of the the, the like space race. They kind of stop at what was like the last point they stopped at with like the the Mercury Project Mercury, right? Basically, it's just the, the end of Mercury. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is funny because yeah. I didn't realize that it was just Project Mercury when I was reading it. For some reason, I thought they went all the way through Apollo. So I'm on like page 300, and we're still talking about Mercury, and I'm like, how? Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. I thought the same thing. I was like, because that would have actually been a logical conclusion to go through to the moon landing. I guess, Um, but man, I mean, it would have been a thousand page book. No, for sure. It would have gotten too long. Maybe that was a publisher decision that maybe he like thought it would be going through Apollo and they were like, nope, (laughs) too long. I think think to a deal's point, the reason the book felt long is that it's not... Like, in some ways, the Mercury stuff, to me, was more boring than, like, who the pilots were. The personalities, yeah. Yeah, like, the the beginning of the book sets that stage so well, and it's so fun and exciting to read. And then I felt like as the Mercury stuff goes on, you get into a little bit of, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened, and then this happened. And I feel like Apollo probably would have just been more of that. In yeah. if, if it were done in this way. So it's actually kind of good because it's like, okay, we we get who the, like, I think the point of the story is to understand who these guys were that were willing to, like, get locked in a tiny, like, metal canister and shot into space. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you get that really well. Like, yeah. it, it's pretty, I mean, the, the character side of this is just so good. Not to build on that, the I didn't really realize this till you were just explaining it, but if you think of the book as like the story of the right stuff, mm-hmm. it kind of ended with the end of Project Mercury is what I think he's suggesting. Yeah, is that afterwards they kind of like made everything into a process. Mm. Like you got the house, you got the goodies, you got the life right. magazine, or uh, well, I whatever think, you got the deal. I think also, and I, I need to go read more about this, but I think that it like changed a little bit like the, because the right stuff is about these, you know, these crazy, like the idea of the right stuff mm. is it's almost like being a cowboy or like, some yeah, exactly. Like yeah. Pirate or something totally. like, yeah. And I think that, and again, I, I'm like medium confidence on this. I think the criteria for astronauts changed from fighter pilots to like scientists yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I have to verify that too, but now I'd heard you need like a PhD now and like, it's like a very different, like you need an advanced degree. I don't know if it's a PhD, yeah. but like, it's like a very yeah. different criteria than like you are a badass fire fighter pilot. Totally. Well, two, two things to that point. At the end of the book, he actually says that their, the like fight, the pilot requirements were softened on future astronauts. Yeah. Like explicitly says that. So you no longer needed to be the best of the there. But then the other thing, and I kind of forgot about this too, actually, is when they were first recruiting for Project Mercury, it was supposed to be wide open. So like anybody yeah, could yeah. apply to become a that part of the program. Part of the story. <laughs> and then they said, okay, then everyone's going to apply. So we need to narrow it down. And the logical group to narrow it down to would be these test pilots. 
and it, it seemed almost arbitrary at the time. They didn't really say why they were narrowing it down to test pilots rather than others because they didn't view the astronauts as pilots at the time. They yeah. viewed them as like specimens. Yeah. Although like when you read through some of the stories of them actually being on these like space missions, they needed the quick thinking ability. Like some of them ended up needing oh, yeah. the quick thinking ability that the pilots had. Yeah. Sure. The, the pieces where the engineers were upset that the astronauts wanted manual controls. I think it was on Grissom's flight and on Scott Carpenter's flight where they needed to go manual. And it got he didn't say this in the book explicitly, but it got me thinking. I was like, if they didn't insist on the manual controls, would those two guys have died in space? Because oh in both cases, the autopilot stuff gave out on them. Yeah. Also, how wild is it that there was autopilot? In that era. Like, I think we were all mistaken. And I think there was some previous episode we were doing where we were, we said something about maybe the reason like space travel advancement had to pause was like computer technology because they didn't have like auto steering and things like that. And it's like, we then we read this book and they're like, oh, yeah, the autopilot. I'm like, how? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it, to uh, in some ways, we were right, though. There, there was one passage I flagged where he says that basically the reason Project Mercury could exist was that the high-speed electronic computer had been recently invented, right? Which it's funny, right? Like their, their idea of high-speed electronic computer, right? And he mentions there too that there was an analogy here with, the, uh, with Columbus who the magnetic compass had just been invented. And before that, people didn't want to stray too far from the shoreline. But once they had magnetic compasses, they felt confident going farther out into open water. So there, there is a little bit of that. And I do wonder if like the computing technology at the time made it possible for us to like do an incredibly expensive space high five, but not enough to actually build commercially viable settlements and like yeah. things like that. And so you really needed the more advanced computing technology to do the things that like SpaceX is doing to bring down the cost of getting weight into orbit by a hundred X or whatever. It's kind of like, yeah. uh, kind of like the difference between the first demonstrated automobiles and like the model T, right? We could build yeah. an automobile, a very, very expensive and inefficient one way earlier than we could build mass produced cars. But yeah, I, the autopilot is crazy. I couldn't believe that existed. There's a quote towards the end uh, of the book where it's quoting a speech from Chuck Yeager in 1953. He, he was the best. He was the best part of the book. He was such a <laughs> badass. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the Yeager breaking the sound barrier stories were fantastic. So this is a summary of what he was saying is talking about the ships of tomorrow had made it all seem far off. But now, 10 years later, they were already bringing such systems into the hardware stage. They were working on a system to land F-4s automatically on aircraft carriers. The pilot would take his hands off the controls and let the computers bring him down on that heaving slab. The supersonic transports and airliners would be so automated, they would give the pilot an override stick just so he could push on it every now and then and feel like a pilot. It would be like a goddamned right stuff security blanket. Maybe the age of the flyboys, the stick and rudder fighter jets was about to be finished. Yeah. And, and in a broader sense, that is also kind of what this book is about, right? Like that era of, yeah, these like crazy fighter pilots is probably over, right? And it was kind of like what Top Gun Maverick yeah. was about too. Right? Yeah. 
Did you guys did you guys see the new Anderil drone? No, yeah. I didn't. <sighs> that thing is crazy looking. <laughs> yeah, I saw a photo that looked pretty intimidating. What what what's special about it? I just saw the photo. Fury, that was Fury. Like- yeah, this thing looks yeah. so mean. So yeah, it's something like a tiny fraction of the cost of all the current drones and Obviously, can like go significantly faster. Let's mm. see. I saw there was like a good Twitter thread that had like a bunch of the stats of what made it so cool. Now I can't find it. Something about like being able to do a bank turn at Mach 0.95, which I guess is impressive. Jeez. Sounds impressive. <laughs> oh, yeah. The G's on that must be. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> probably more than a human can reasonably handle. Yeah, that's probably true. The. Yeah, I mean, uh, while you're looking for that, like, it's probably worth even just talking about what the right stuff is, like, what it means. Yeah, yeah. Because uh, I thought that was, like, it was really fascinating. I think it actually has a lot of, like, it is one of those things where even even as he was describing it, he was like, these are all, like, ways of describing it, but none of them quite capture what it actually means. Yeah. Like, I have this one thing I highlighted where he's talking about, how the the test pilots don't actually want to talk about the right stuff at all. Like they never want to mention it. So this is from the book. Perhaps because it could not be talked about, the subject began to take on superstitious and even mystical outlines. A man either had it or he didn't. There was no such thing as having most of it. Moreover, it could <laughs> blow at any, t- any seam. One day a man would be ascending the pyramid at a terrific clip and the next, bingo, he would reach his own limits in the most unexpected way. That second chapter, so the first chapter is the risks taken by test pilots. The second chapter is all about the right stuff. That would be the one you would publish as like the Vanity Fair excerpt yep. to try and hype for the book. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But there is like something to this, the right stuff concept, because uh, people even talk about it like in sports, right? And it's like, you almost like have it until you don't. And... You, you like when people talk about like basketball players or like football players and stuff, it's like sometimes a player has it and then they get injured and then they never have it again because then they have this like fear of injury in their head. And yeah, they're still good, but they don't play with the same like reckless abandon and like invincibility that they did before. Yeah. Even yeah. at the end of the book yes. where yeah. he, uh, he has that near fatal crash. Yep. All right. I found I found Palmer Lucky's tweet about it. It's capable of pulling nine G's at Mach 0.95 for a tiny fraction of the cost of similarly performant fighter craft, which is wild. Damn. Is it like completely self-piloting too? Yeah. Wow. So you could have like a swarm of them. (laughs) There's a lot. (laughs) How big is it? Like the, there's no sense of scale. Yeah. Yeah. The pictures don't have anything to compare the size to. Is this like a bus? Is it like a... Yeah. I was at the Intrepid a uh, few weeks back, mm-hmm. which is the uh, uh, aircraft carrier turned into like a f- aircraft carrier slash flight museum, a military flight museum in New York. And they have... It's not the SR-71. It's another one whose name I forget, which was like one click before the SR-71. Mm. But they they look functionally the same and apparently their flight dynamics are like very similar as well. But something I was amazed by is how long it was. 
even in the photos, you don't get a sense for just how long it is. It's because it's so narrow and you always see the photos are always taken from like a quarter angle. So you don't really get a great sense of depth, but it just looked like someone had taken what I thought was in the photo, stretched it to like 1.5 X the length and then just started like, okay, that's it. Like, (laughs) dude, two stats on the SR 71 for people that aren't familiar, which will like blow your mind. So in 19, 90 yeah uh, march 6 1990 it flew from la to washington dc dulles airport in one hour four minutes and 20 seconds (laughs) (laughs) and here's another one it also holds the new york to london flight record uh set in 1974 of one hour 54 minutes 56.4 seconds wow under two hours new york to london that is wild The, uh, it's like the, that that actually just brings back like where's my flying car like it's just yeah, like right? if we we're capable of this <laughs> well what was the concord speed actually we we had it what was the concord yeah. speed i don't um, i don't remember I'll look that up. what was the top speed for the sr71 2200 miles an hour or more than 2200 miles an hour let's see just said capable <laughs> mach 3.4 Wait, was the for the blackbird or the concord no, SR-71. Okay. Although there's one pilot who reported going Mach 3.5, like three and a half times the speed of sound <laughs> while evading a missile over Libya. <laughs> nice. <laughs> but in testing, the highest it ever got was 3.4. So they count that as like the official top speed. But seems like he pushed it to escape that missile. <laughs> My favorite SR-71 trivia is that apparently... Because just because of the design concerns at the time, they had to account for how much it would heat up and the metal would stretch when it was in flight. And so when it was on the ground, it would just leak fuel because it wouldn't be fully sealed. (laughs) But then once it was up in flight, it would seal itself from the thermal expansion. The X-15, which is mentioned in the book as what the test pilots thought would compete with the space program because their thinking was you would pilot it all the way up and then mm-hmm. into space flew at 4,500 miles per hour Mach 6.7 Dude, wow. I didn't even look up the X-15 when I was reading this thing just looks like a missile yeah. <laughs> it, just it doesn't look like a plane yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so going back to the Concorde thing the Concorde actually did New York to London in two hours, 52 minutes and 59 seconds. Wow. That is pretty oh, good. Man. That'd be pretty sick. Like, wow. bring that back. That sounds great. <laughs> I mean, I know it had safety issues probably, but pretty amazing. That was a commercial plane. Yeah. So in the book, they make a, a, a big deal out of how when you are approaching the speed of sound and you're in that like transonic zone, I think is what they call it there's all that like buffeting and shaking. Mm-hmm. So I was reading a little bit. I was like, well, what was it like on the Concorde? Cause you packing like a hundred some people into this thing. It can't shake as violently as they describe like the X one shaking, for example, because the shaking in the book is described as so violent that until Chuck Yeager broke the speed of sound, they actually believed it was unbreakable because you would just yeah. keep shaking, 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 and then disintegrate. And the reason was surprisingly mundane. Basically, 
there's a few contributing factors, namely that you basically get pockets of like high and low air pressure between the plane and just in front of it. And it's based on like the aerodynamics of the plane. And one of those is actually caused by the fact that the early planes didn't use delta wings. So if you notice, like the X1 has a straight wing sticking out of the sides. And it's a kind of mm-hmm. weird looking actually once you get used to what modern supersonic planes oh, look like. Huh, yeah, okay. So the Concorde had a little bit of that buffeting because there's only so far to which you can push the aerodynamics, but they had basically made it such that the areas of like high and low pressure in front of the plane and, and those high and low pressure areas would change based on the speed of the plane. So you can't just like make one fix because then it has like some kind of second order consequence elsewhere on the design. So they basically solved enough of that, that even though it would shake a little bit, it wouldn't compare to the shaking described in the book for the test pilots. Cool. Hmm. But it would still shake, was my takeaway. It says that the Concorde was actually put out of service, not because of uh, safety reasons, but because it was extremely noisy and uncomfortable because of that, and also extremely expensive to operate. So even yeah. though they charged, like I'm seeing here that the flight cost was, average round trip on the Concorde was $12,000. So it was probably like hard to even at that price point make it profitable. There's a very good video about this on YouTube. I think by one of those flight channels that I can throw into the notes. And uh, yeah, it was the final nail in the coffin was the crash. But yeah. before then, because init- originally they wanted it to be like the people's plane, not in like the communist sense, but you know, just sort of accessible to all. So they were actually flying it at a loss for a while. Right. That's what it and looks then, like. Yeah. Yeah. And then they switched it to be like ultra first class, which honestly, I mean, it kind of makes sense from a business model standpoint. I'm like, I forget where I heard this line, but like first class lands at the same time as economy when you're on the same plane. Right. right? Like the only thing I can make first class more first is if you're, you know, getting there in half the time. Right. Have you guys seen the new Overture plane from Boom Aerospace? Yeah, I'd taken a look at that at one point. It's been a while. Man, this is a sexy plane. Oh yeah, I saw that. Yes, now it's it hard. They're supposed to. Uh, they're supposed to have a test flight soon. Oh yeah. Not for the overture though. For the uh, XB one. Yeah, XB one. There you go. Mach one point seven. I wonder who's piloting that. Yeah, right. Probably just the computer. Still needs the right stuff. Oh well, yeah, not the computer. Yeah. <laughs> the, the computer is called right stuff GPT. <laughs> Also, like talking, going back to like the personalities of these pilots slash astronauts, they were so interesting. Like one of the another, I mean, okay, so there's a big outlier, which is John Glenn. Let's put him aside for a second. Yeah. Uh, Because he's, he obviously had the right stuff, but he was like a different type of personality. But just to give a sense of like the personalities of these pilots, there's a quote I have, which is more fighter pilots died in automobiles than in airplanes. Yeah. <laughs> and it seemed like a lot of them died in airplanes too, because the testing wasn't exactly safe, right? So yeah. it just there was I forget the term he used, but it was basically like drinking and driving was drinking and like, flying, flying drinking and drinking. Drinking and flying, drinking and driving. Yeah. You know, drinking they were yeah. driving and flying and drinking. It was something like that. Yeah. yeah, well they would like go out, they would and, and this was like in the uh San Diego area, but they would go out at night, drink, and then in the morning their like flights would be at like five AM. Yeah, so a lot of times they're like still drunk. Go flying at five. Yeah, (laughs) insane. 
And then who was it? Well, who was it before? Was it Chuck Yeager? Where before his Chuck like, Yeager. yeah, where he br- got thrown off the broke horse, his ribs, <laughs> <laughs> broke his ribs. <laughs> so the two anecdotes that stood out. One was that one that Chuck Yeager broke the sound barrier after drunkenly breaking two of his ribs on earlier horseback. that week. Yeah. On horseback. <laughs> the other one that stood out was that Alan Shepard had, they didn't build a method for him to like urinate in the capsule. Oh, yeah. <laughs> So he just had to go before lunch. I was like, man, this guy is piece of history at National Hero. Like, and the main thrust of his launch story was that he just had to go. Pissed like, himself, <laughs> yeah. The four-hour delay on the launch pad. I was happy. So I did a little bit of reading after on what happened to all these guys and which of them got to go to space again. And Alan Shepard went back up on Apollo 14. So he got his like redemption. Cool. So in the book... He's so did he, he very went to the upset. moon. Alan Shepard went to the moon. Yeah, did fourteen make it to the moon? Yeah, thirteen okay. was the one that didn't. Okay, but yeah, Alan Shepard was the first American in space. But because of the design of his capsule, and because of like the goals of the program, he didn't really get to do much. He didn't actually make it into orbit. He just went up and came straight back down fifteen minutes later. So he kind of got forgotten. And they, they even make a joke about it in the book. He's like, they keep they kind of poke fun at him for saying, "But I was first. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, also, speaking of going into orbit, the other thing that was interesting is how politics influenced the method of getting into orbit, like the rocket model versus like, or not the rocket model, let's say the NASA program versus like the Air Force program mm-hmm. of like yeah. flying. So so the two models, right, are like one is the exactly what you picture when you picture like NASA and like the space shuttle, right? Like the launch pad, the vertical rockets and like going straight up. And then the other method is basically a plane that yeah. like just keeps flying higher and higher and higher and it was funny they got like no attention whereas everyone was paying attention to nasa it didn't matter what the air force did i mean I, I had that reaction while i was reading it i don't remember who it was but there was the one pilot who he i mean he takes the plane basically up to space yeah like during Beyond the mercury the program yeah yeah mm-hmm. and and then flies it back down and like, I don't know about you guys. Like, I didn't know that we ever had planes that, like, could do that. Yeah. And it does kind of, it does kind of raise a question of, like, wait, why did we pick the rocket model? Right. Right. Well, okay. Like, to be, yeah. to be fair, those planes used rockets. They were just like yeah. rocket thrusters, but on like a more traditional plane as opposed yeah. to doing like the vertical. I just wonder why. Yeah. Why I agree. I had no idea. Lost, right. Yeah. Yeah, the, the passage at the end is, on July 19th, Joe Walker flew the X-15 to 347,800 feet, which was 66 miles up. And the agreed arbitrary boundary of space is 50 miles. Yeah. So he's a good click beyond. He's like 30% beyond it. Yeah. I just, it, there's something it about that. I know, there's something about that that seems like a better model to me, Right. I don't know, like maybe just because planes are more familiar, yeah. but it does seem like if you could just take off from a normal taxiway and then just go. Yeah, like you don't need maybe a launch pad. You can just yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Maybe you can't bring as much weight. I wonder if the like weight to orbit is way less efficient yeah. that way. Like that's that seems possible, right? Or like, and, or does that cap out somewhere? Does it get hard to go from? Although the once you're up, as long as you have some sort of propulsion, like it shouldn't matter. Like the shape of the ship. I, I wonder uh, if this is just narrative fallacy, but it, it almost seems like the space shuttle looks like it's trying to uh, split the difference here, where 
it goes up with rockets, it drops the unnecessary ones, and then it comes back as a plane. But unlike the plane, it can carry all that cargo up because it is on the back of a rocket. Where I would imagine it'd probably be... Like, imagine something the size of a space shuttle having to take off from a runway and then just keep going and going and going. Because most of a rocket is just fuel, right? Like, Mm -hmm. even in the book, they mention once the rocket is empty of its fuel, it actually starts to flex because so much of its rigidity and so much of it is just the fact that it's a can full of fuel. Yeah. I like, they, he didn't talk about this that much in the book, but it is kind of crazy to imagine. Like it, we, we take a lot of this stuff for granted because we're used to it, but imagine being the first person to be like, yo, what if we strapped a building full of fuel to it and then just dropped it in the ocean on the way up? <laughs> like, that is actually such an insane idea right? <laughs> that it's like, okay, no, no, no. It's we're, we're just going to have it like external. And once it's empty, we're just going to chuck it in the water and keep going. <laughs> it's a great solution. It's just, it's, it makes sense that it started off as a military thing. Cause then you have no, issue with the hazards like oh yeah, whatever yeah. it blows up we have plenty more imagine yeah. trying to do that today and Greta Thunberg's on TV like you can't pollute the ocean <laughs> <laughs> oh how many of the uh, how many of the SpaceX ones blew up in the ocean because I know they have that they blew up they just blew these things up left and right till they got it right I think it was their 13th like their 12th or 13th landing that huh. that they nailed it and stuck then- it in 13 which is pretty fucking impressive. That's yeah. incredible. And the other interesting thing with those space planes is how they described once you got above, I think it was above a hundred thousand feet, you just lost all aerodynamics. So you would just start like, cause there was no resistance, right? And, yeah. My God, guys, this is such an incredible demonstration of how quickly we get spoiled by things. How many successful landings of the rocket boosters, do you think SpaceX is done? Don't look it up. You've primed me a little bit. I'm going to say 50. I was going to yeah. say like 20. 227. Wow. <laughs> Dude, 227 and they only took 13 tries to get it right is insane. It's fewer than 13. They have successfully landed 227 times out of 238 attempts. So I think they got it right on like the eighth or ninth because there were, there have been a couple of mistakes since then, but they've done a hundred consecutive successful landings. Wow. Wow. It's pretty insane. So a question nobody had ever asked me that I had never thought about till now, like knowing that I would be much more comfortable getting on one of those a hundred consecutive successful landings. Well, but you're well, also, this isn't even the thing you're getting on. Yeah. yeah this, this is, is the, the part that would fall in the ocean. So this is the yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I know, I know. I'm just saying, like, if we put a chair up there. Yeah, like, yeah. Because <laughs> they're preparing for the... Well, actually, they did one crewed flight. I kind of forget who's launching who yeah. at this point. SpaceX is on a few okay. of the... They, they're the ones sending people to the ISS now on the Dragon capsules. Okay. The Dragon. Okay, right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think about this occasionally. Like, I know we've talked about this on the podcast before, too. But whenever, whenever you, like see those statistics about how weird Americans are compared to the rest of the world. And it's like, well, yeah, because if you're here and you're not American Indian, then in like your recent ancestral history, you had a crazy enough person 
to like get on a ship or a plane and come over here, like not speaking the language and not knowing anyone and just like figure shit out. Right. (laughs) And that's like such a hard thing for me to imagine being willing to do. I mean, I guess if you, if you grew up in a much rougher like country or city, you're going to be more motivated to do it, but we're, we're going to have that opportunity in our lifetime probably. Or like our kids are certainly going to have that opportunity, and to go to another planet or another yeah place. yeah like that's really like because that hasn't really existed in the world in the last couple hundred years, right? Like there wasn't really anywhere you could go that was like new land, right? Like a new country that you could move to and help start and explore. Well, yeah, Adil and I were talking about this before you jumped on about how like, you know, the, all reading all these books of like this one, Rondon book, yeah, you know, River of Doubt. Like, we're like, why are we in front of our computers all the time? <laughs> I know there's nothing. It, it is sad. There's nothing to explore. I, I, I know. I think I've shared this with you guys before, but yeah. like it was something like every guy making video game videos on YouTube would have been out exploring some like new land in his country 200 years ago we just have nothing else to explore and so that like that male instinct has nowhere else to go besides video games now the the level of danger for you know moon or mars is also just orders of magnitude greater than you know just getting on a boat going somewhere else which is already insane yeah you can at least breathe the atmosphere in america exactly yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly you can grow you food. A hole in the wall of your, yep yeah yep. so i wonder the reason i bring that up is I, I wonder if that will mean the magnitude of like i don't know what you want to call this trait the like leave everything behind go somewhere new level of like you know i don't know bravery crazy whatever you want to call it it'll be like 10x the magnitude, 100x the magnitude for those who go to the moon or Mars. Yeah. I mean, I don't remember who said this, but like it is, it's interesting that nobody's really colonized Antarctica, right? (laughs) It's a lot easier to live there than Mars. (laughs) Yeah, you can still breathe the air. You can breathe the air. It's cold, but you can breathe the air. (laughs) So I, I guess it's just, it is less sexy. Right to just go to this cold, barren waste. But I mean, Mars is also. I mean, that's cold, what Mars is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, but it's Mars. It's Mars. I, I bet. I bet it'll happen after. Right, we'll start building moon bases yeah. and Mars bases, and then somebody will be like, "Wait, we should just make Antarctica a country." And none of the countries that have claims to it will be motivated enough to like start a war over it. So, yeah. have you guys looked up the Antarctic Treaty? It's kind of weird. No, no, never heard of it. It's like 12 countries have a semi-equal share in it, and everyone mutually agrees to preserve it for scientific research and, like, non-interference. And it's like, it's basically everybody who had an early explorer go. So it's like America, England, Argentina, I think, like, Greenland or something. I, I could look it up right in front of my computer. But it was just kind of a funny arrangement that everybody's just decided like, yeah, we're not going to do anything there. I have the list. It's Argentina, Australia, Belgium, Chile, France, Japan, New Zealand, Norway, South Africa, the Soviet Union, the United Kingdom, and the United States. I feel like this is only possible if or until there's like an oil discovery. Yeah, Yeah, I was going to say, once you you find oil. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Drill, baby, drill. 
They're like, oh, it's a big ice cube. Yeah, we'll spin yeah. it. Well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, once it has something somebody wants, then it's just like, who has the bigger exactly. guns? Once we find lithium. They get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, no, the, the dangers of Mars thing really kind of struck home when whose capsule was it that when it came back to Earth and fell in the ocean, oh my started God. like started taking drowning. on water? Ugh. Yeah. Yeah, no, Grissom. No, yeah, Grissom. But think about like, like a mission to Mars, you have that risk for like, if there's any sort of like seal that breaks and your atmosphere is escaping, like you're just, not only are you like utterly screwed in the moment, you are not getting help because help is months away. (laughs) I mean, at that point you have to build the whole thing autonomously. You have to have like a million levels of redundancy. And even then, like somebody will definitely die on that. Like, for sure. Well, okay. And the ISS has been fine for decades, right? That's true. So yeah. it might be yeah. it might be a little bit more doable than like there's certainly going to be errors, right? But yeah. the ISS is actually pretty impressive when you think about it in that sense, because space is I don't actually is space worse or better? It might be better because there's no storms. But Yeah, I was gonna say you like don't know the dynamics of the ground underneath you if there's earthquakes or winds or like yeah. a pebble that flies. The ISS is very impressive, but it is it, it can be reached in as quickly as four hours from Earth. Wow. And it's That's only cool. 420 kilometers up. If, if you have a clear launch. Yes, if you have a clear launch. But the yeah. idea would be like, I mean, in an emergency, I would imagine there's like many different launch points, right? From many different countries, potentially. Probably. Uh, I, I mean, at least Russia, China, the U.S. Yeah, like I do feel like if it starts losing its EU. atmosphere, though, it's just over. <laughs> yes, you're still right, done once in it starts that losing case. atmosphere, then it's going to be a projectile and like. Totally, I just meant like the yeah. journey to Mars is like <laughs> seven months. The trip to Mars yeah. will take <laughs> seven <laughs> months. <laughs> is that seven months at the closest point? Because like, you can't just yeah. like up and yeah, down. Yeah, I think like it a, is. I think you got to wait like 18 months for the planets to align and then it's seven months. Yep. Yeah, it's like, it, it's something crazy, like 14 months at the longest point. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah. Although that that's assuming like current speeds, right? Like you could right, accelerate a ship at 1G perpetually and get there way faster. That's actually a great point. Yeah, because yeah. that is right now an assumption that travel right. speed would be the same. Yeah, it's also crazy where if you if you launched a ship and ha- and kept it at uh, continual one g acceleration, you could actually get to the other side of the galaxy in about fifty years. Wow, which is pretty cool. Is there a constraint then for that? Just fuel, like where does the energy come from? Yeah, or couldn't so. you? Do- I feel like that could be done with nuclear, though. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how much. But I mean, like even fuel, you would need. need- Fuel. Yeah, yeah. That's actually another thing that's amazing. Like the fact that all these submarines are just like hanging out in the ocean for like decades. We've had these like nuclear submarines, and as far as we know, it's been working fine. It's yeah. like yeah. kind of amazing. <laughs> yeah, that is wild to me. The uh, yeah, see, there were photos of this British submarine at like it like resurfaced. I think a day or two ago, and all this like marine life was living on it and people were like oh this thing looks like shit da, 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 da. like my takeaway was it was underwater for six months hiding in like a cave somewhere yeah. <laughs> and there were human beings in there yeah like just living their whole lives for six months 
how did that, they like, do? How did they deal with the oxygen issue? Actually, are they like they probably have some system yeah. for capturing CO two and turning it back? That was what they did for the Apollo thirteen astronauts because they mm. lost their oxygen. They had to like build an improvised way to convert CO two back. If I remember correctly, yeah, yeah, that's such an incredible movie. An oxygen generator which can come from the electrolysis of water. Basically, yeah, that makes sense. taking the oxygen out of H two O. Yeah, and oh, rebonding it with carbon. Or no, you wouldn't have to rebond it with carbon. You'd have to remove the carbon, right? Because you would also have to dump the CO2 somehow. Maybe they just shoot it into the ocean. The that's that's possible, yeah. The percentage of... Yo, yeah, I see what you're saying. The percentage of CO2 within the air cannot be allowed to rise. Moisture yeah. is that, that is that exhaled that? must also be removed. Oh, interesting. Yeah, you got humidity problems. Mm-hmm. Did you guys know this? That you lose, you lose most of the weight that you lose through breathing. Yep. That was in what? one of the breathing yeah. books that I read. I think it breathed. I think the, it was in James breath. Nestor one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah breath, breathe. yeah. Yeah, because like it, what's his name? Lane, was it Lane Norton? No, it was somebody else who was on Huberman explained this in, it, it was like, it was so obvious once he said it that I felt dumb for like not thinking of it earlier, but he's like, yeah, you take in O2 and you breathe out CO2 so your body is like adding carbon and then expelling it. And yeah. like when you sweat, you lose some mineral and stuff and obviously like pooping and Water. peeing, but a lot of that gets replaced by drinking and eating. But like the breath is where you're literally just like removing weight from your body. It's kind of crazy. I know. And that's why like, I guess breathing incorrectly could have so many downstream, uh, <clears throat> problems yeah i thought that was super interesting that like improving how somebody breathes can make them lose weight like sleep apnea and stuff can actually lead to weight gain because you're like not dumping carbon as efficiently as you should be or something weird yeah yeah well have you guys seen that have you seen any of that stuff too about airflow in bedrooms and offices no this is like I've, i've been I keep meaning to like look into this for my house, but this is apparently one of the best things you can do for like your health is to make sure there's consistent fresh airflow through where you work and where you sleep because the carbon buildup in those places throughout the day and throughout the night gets to like pretty unhealthy levels since you're just breathing and your HVAC system isn't really pulling it out. Yeah. Yeah. But it's like challenging because you probably don't want to sleep at the window open a lot of the year. It'd be better if you did. But I, I haven't looked at a good uh, looked into a good solution for it. But you can test CO two levels in your rooms and like see how much of an impact it's having. I guess it's often pretty bad in those two places. I think it was one of you guys that I was having this conversation with years ago on whether plants would do anything about this. Yeah. And the thing that we learned was that the answer is no. Yeah, it doesn't. It's just not enough. Is that why? Not or? enough. Yeah. yeah. Plants take in so little CO2 compared to what we put out that it just has no meaningful yeah. impact. That's why, like, if you, if you look at... There's something crazy, like the, the mangroves in the Amazon process, like, 10 or 20% of all the CO2 in the world. Like... Wow. It's, it's these crazy aquatic plants that do most of the work. Like even, hmm. even the trees around us don't do as much of do it as much. you think. Yeah. It's worth fact checking me on that one. But yeah, house plants basically are just for 
cosmetic and vibes. They're not really helping the air. <laughs> so this book would be really cool as a movie, which apparently there is one. Oh yeah, <laughs> Adil, Adil watched the movie instead of reading the book, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> uh, no, I haven't finished the movie yet. It's long. It's like three hours and ten minutes. Uh, I'm did you just only buy it, or where did you where did you find it? I I just rented it on uh, Apple TV. I think nice, cool. It's like four bucks. It is really good. It, it won an Oscar, didn't it? I have no idea. I would believe it. It's the first thirty minutes that I've seen were excellent. But yeah, if you're on the fence about either the book or the movie, just watch the first three minutes of the movie. Cool. <laughs> Literally the first three <laughs> minutes. Go to YouTube, search the right stuff, opening scene. And if you're fired up, then read the book. <laughs> if you're not fired up, then put the whole thing down. Wow. Uh, <laughs> 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. Oh my God, Chuck Yeager is in it. He, play, he plays the bartender. Oh, wow. <laughs> That's you so a long time. So for how dangerous these, this, what these guys did was, Chuck Yeager lived to be 97 years old. He died in 2020. Good for him. Wow. It's pretty amazing. If you look at the... Uh, Mercury astronauts, they didn't live nearly as long. I mean, they were Grissom died when there was the Apollo one astronauts who all died in their thirties because uh, they were in the capsule when it caught fire, and then there were a handful of other deaths. And a lot of these guys died between like sixty and seventy. Yeah. I was reading about just the combined set of astronauts between the first three programs, and something that stood out to me was John Young. He was on two Gemini flights, and then he was on two Apollo flights, Apollo 10, which went to the moon but didn't land on it, and 16. And you just got to wonder, like, the mindset of a person. You've, like, been all the way to the moon, and then you go back, like, that second trip. So one of the things that stood out is I'm going to – dive into conspiracy land for a minute. So when you look at like the moon landing conspiracies, one of the things that comes up often is this like Apollo 11 interview where uh, Neil Buzz and I think the third guy's name was Michael Collins, if I remember correctly. They're like getting interviewed. They're very unemotional. It just seems kind of like they have guns to their heads, yada, yada. And like, I don't believe any of the moon landing conspiracies, but with every conspiracy, there's always something they bring up and you're like, well, I don't know how to answer that, even though I'd don't buy into your thing. After reading this book, it actually seems like, because this book paints the media as like animals. Yeah. Like it's very, very negative on the media. It almost describes them as like ape-like. They're just jumping. Oh, we also hour. didn't even talk about that. Like how they were protecting the, the like, yeah. the vibes. Really like the image, yeah, the vibes around the program. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Adil, sorry for uh, cutting you off. Keep going. No, no, yeah, let's put on. a pin yeah. in that. So that was one of the two things that stood out to me. I was like, well, these guys just went to the moon and back. They probably don't really want to sit down for two hours and talk to these guys who they all hate because they like harass them and harass their wives and harass their kids. And the second thing, and this was, I think my biggest surprise from the book actually was that the training and sorry, the reason that I brought this whole thing up was about John Young going to the moon twice. The training regimens were so intense that when they were actually on the flight, they were desensitized to the experience. So even oh, John yeah. Glenn, he was like, yeah, I've done this before. Like none of this feels new. And they were asking him to narrate what was going through his head while he was in space. And he was like, well, like, you know, it's sort of exactly what I experienced in the simulator and not, it's actually less interesting. Easier. Yeah. Than it was the easier simulator. than the simulator. Yeah. <laughs> that was such a crazy. Uh, so 
But, you go to the moon and back, and I would imagine the training for that is even more insane. And you're already desensitized to it. And then you come back and you sit in front of the press and you're not very emotional because you're like, well, I actually did it a thousand times before I did it for the first time. Yeah. Like the fact that they could be up there and not feel anything is wild to me. Well, I mean, the whole thing with the chimp was amazing too. It's like that whole interlude with like the chimp training and then the chimp going up before <laughs> the humans went up. It was like, he's just like real point. down in the water when they open it up. Yep. <laughs> It's an apple. It also, like, I don't know, it made me... I, I, I have not read or watched much about chimps, but, like, I never realized how truly, like, human-like they are. Mm. Like, they seem like they can't be trained in the way that, like, a dog can be trained and still love you. It's like, they hate you, if they even if you're training them. It's like, they're, they're being trained the way, like, a slave would be trained, right? Like, mm. you can, yeah. like, beat them Very into submission, agent. basically, or, like... Pain, you know, use pain as like the way to make them submit, but they're not going to love you. Like the agency remains. Yeah. Yeah. Like they still have that will and that like individuality. Yeah. It makes sense. They're not domesticated, right? That's sort yeah. of the definition of domesticated, right? Yeah. Yeah. It is crazy though. So something that we haven't touched on yet, because we discussed a little bit like test pi- fighter pilots who then become test pilots because that's the next level up on the pyramid. And then from there you go up and up doing crazier tests and eventually becoming an astronaut. But early in the book, before that was established, that astronaut was above test pilot on the pyramid, there was tension between them for precisely this reason, where the test pilots viewed astronauts just as like human specimens going to space. Oh, yeah. Because they weren't piloting the craft. They were just sitting there. You know, you had like sensors all over your body. And a big part of the book is when Wally and a couple of the other guys are in that hotel room and they're debating whether or not going to become astronauts will be bad for their careers because they're worried about their Navy career. Yeah. And yeah. it turned out to be like, not at all like that. And it's funny. It made some of the other pilots like feel bad or like feel cheated in a way. Yeah. Yeah. But that's kind of weird to imagine now. Cause we're like post astronaut. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the idea that a bunch of pilots would sit around and be like, should I do this? Is it going to be bad for my Navy career? Is surreal. <laughs> well, it's, it's like, yeah, it's it's weird in hindsight, but it's the same thing about like kind of I don't know what the like equivalent would be for like tech or like the internet, but it would be the same of like somebody in like I don't know, 1989 being like, should I get into this whole like computer thing like or should I stay with, you know, I don't know, like what whatever the equivalent would Punch be. Punch cards. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like I don't know, like this seems interesting, but like it might mess up my career at like Kmart, I don't know, or some like yeah. obsolete like, company now. At the, um, at the telephone switchboard. Yeah, exactly. Like, exa- that's probably yeah. a better analogy. Yeah, it's like, I think w- that's just the way it is with any like new thing. It's like the only people who end up doing it are the ones who kind of are just like, either I, they have no choice and they just have to do it, or it's like they are just not as career. Like, the smart career move would have been to do the Navy thing. But this is like, it, I think it's a little different. It would be as if we discovered like a new dimension. We're yeah. Like, we're going to send people into this dimension. Yeah. And then the astronauts are like, is this bad for my space shuttle career? Yeah. It's like, yeah, dude, there's yeah. a new dimension. Right? <laughs> <laughs> there is a new layer. Well, but here's the thing. You don't know if that's like a dead end. Like, what if they tried the whole like oh, astronaut yeah. thing and it just it's didn't true. work? And it was worked. like, oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were just like, damn, now I don't have either thing. And it almost failed. Yeah. When Kennedy became president, they almost killed it. They had to yep, rush yeah. it through. 
It's also crazy how much Kennedy has done, like, did in his very short time as president. Like, I don't know, his such an outsized influence versus how many years he was president. <laughs> yeah, what Bay of Pigs, then the standoff over the Cuban Missile uh, Crisis, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, space, space program. Like, yep. So I, I know we have to wrap up, but I, there's one thing that I've been like itching to get to that maybe we can talk about for a minute. So we discussed this before that like Kennedy and then the like two presidents after him until we got to the moon had to like fight to keep the budget going every single year and it was highly politicized. And that was like a surprising historical fact, at yeah. least at the time that I read it and we talked about it because we always felt like everyone was behind Apollo all the way. And from our perspective today, Mercury and Gemini are kind of like, relatively speaking, nothing burgers, because they weren't the first because the Russians were first, and they weren't to the moon because Apollo was to the moon. So they were kind of caught in between. But this book, it's kind of told in the present tense. Yeah. Reframe that for me, where if you were a contemporary at the time, Mercury was the biggest deal, and like Gemini and Apollo were much less interesting. And that is very hard to imagine as well. It's like these guys were literally heroes. Yeah. yeah. Well, I don't think they would have been less interesting. They would have been like equally interesting or just like people going to the moon still would have been exciting. Like everybody watched the Apollo 11. Right. But, but like, I think to your point, we don't, we don't really like care about Mercury and Gemini anymore, but yeah, at the time it was insane. A huge deal. Yeah. Also like how big of a deal the Soviet program was. Oh yeah. That was the other thing that I wanted to like really quickly touch on. Can you imagine that you're like, so excited to be the first guy to go into space. You got this whole thing planned. Like you're just going to go up, hit space, come back down. It's going to be awesome. And then three weeks before you're supposed to go up, the Soviets don't just put a man in space. does a full orbit and then comes back and lands on land. Like not even the whole water splashdown thing. Like, how did they do the land landings? I have no idea. They, because they didn't, like, I, I, we probably know now. But to also yeah. have all of that happen and only know that it happened, but have no, like, even pictures of the rocket, right? Like, that's, yeah. oh my God, can you imagine? <laughs> <laughs> it, it actually, it, it really reminds me of, do you guys know that story of the two guys who were racing to reach the South Pole first? Yeah. <laughs> I think we may have talked about it. I haven't we read probably any talked about it before. That, yeah, yeah, yeah. But go back like and do the, it again, though. It's the it's the guy from Norway and the guy from England, and they're starting at opposite sides of Antarctica and trying to get there first. And the the Norway guy gets there first, plants the flag, and then leaves like a little note for the English guy, and then leaves. The English guy gets there, <laughs> finds the note, gets hit by a blizzard, and dies. Like. <sighs> Just brutal. I know. Brutal. Man. So brutal. Um, But yeah. Different different species. We aren't those humans anymore. Like, (laughs) we are. We're just, we just, maybe we are. We're just too soft. Maybe we'd rise to the occasion. Yeah. Yeah. When the, uh, when the Mars spaceships are ready, we'll find out. We're all, we're all older than these guys in the book. I know. That's also, I know. That is weird. If I if I were eighteen and it was like the fourth or fifth Mars mission, I might go. Not the first. Not the first. I'm not, not that first. 
Yeah, I probably would not either. I feel like Nat could. I could see Nat on the fourth or fifth one. I could. I could be first. Adil and I would be like on the twentieth, twenty fifth, something like that. Just based on how early adopters, like where we yeah. are in our early adopter curves, like Nat is definitely like the earlier, earlier adopter. Oh man, I could. I could definitely be first. First hundred thousand people, I could go for that if I didn't have kids and stuff. But yeah, yeah. Well, our next book is another badass. It's about a character. If you listen to the River of Doubt episode, somebody we were raving about. You say his name, Candido Randon, right? Randon. Even though that's not his real name. uh, I found that out reading the book. That is a name basically he gave himself, um, which is interesting (laughs) because the Randons are like a more influential family than what he came from, which was not anything. And he was just like, I'm going to make that my last name now. Uh, anyway we'll get more into him in the next one we're covering a book about him make sure you subscribe keep leaving reviews we got like i think we're up to like 62 spotify reviews so that's uh yeah thank you to everyone who's doing that super easy on spotify just a one click you just have to listen to the show first there they won't let you do it otherwise (laughs) and pick up the right stuff yeah pick up the right stuff i'm gonna watch the movie very fun i want to watch the movie at some point too yeah. It's Ed Harris's uh John Glenn, right? So um, Yeah, I saw that. I said I just looked yeah, it up. Yeah. Yep. yeah. But yeah, tell a friend and let us know what you think on are we still calling it Twitter? X? What X. are we doing? Calling it X? X. I haven't uh, gotten there yet. I haven't been saying X. The honor of the rebrand, man. It's forty four <laughs> billion right there. It it is hard to it doesn't work well in a sentence. It doesn't. It doesn't yeah. sound it right. It doesn't work well in any context, yeah. but it was so yeah. expensive. We have Follow to me on X. <laughs> X me. <laughs> we're going to watch some X videos later. <laughs> yeah. Almost sounds like a new porn site or something. <laughs> it is a porn site. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> all right. Good, See you all there, Neil. <laughs> See you guys. <laughs>